You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. All of the harms and hurts and heartbreaks that have happened to us as adults. So as my son had to point out to me often, you know, but you do this. You manage this. You handle this. You know, why do you think that I can't or shouldn't? It was like starting light again at 18 and I was 50. And in a, a big city. I mean, Van Buren was a very small town. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you're listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 224, Wellness from Within, airing for the first time on Sunday, January 3rd, 2016. Each new year brings with it the opportunity to evaluate the paths our lives have taken and make certain that we are embracing the possibility of wellness within ourselves. In its broadest sense, wellness is being fully integrated and appreciative of all the gifts, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, that we have been given. Today, we speak about the pursuit of inner wellness with best-selling author Kate Braestrup and Vivian Franck, a former nun who wrote a book entitled Forever Becoming. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way that it's meant to be. And by the Rooms family of restaurants, who are hosting their third annual New Year's Eve charity gala at Boone's Fish House. The evening starts with a prefix menu in front of a fireplace with live jazz, then kicks into high gear upstairs from 9 p.m. till 1 a.m. with music by the Jason Spooner Band. Special giveaways all evening and your enjoyment will help raise money to feed hungry children in Maine through full plates, full potential. Last year, the rooms raised $10,000, and this year, they want you to help them beat that number. Call 207-774-5725 for reservations. Have fun this New Year's Eve by giving back. Today, it is my great pleasure to have back in the studio um, an individual who has written books that I really love, and so it's just so thrilling to be able to hang out with her again. This is author Kate Braestrup, who is a community minister, chaplain to the Maine Game Warden Service, and the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Here If You Need Me. Her other works include Marriage and Other Acts of Charity and Beginner's Grace, Bringing Prayer to Life. Her latest book is Anchor and Flares, a memoir of motherhood, hope, and service. Thanks so much for being back with us again. Thanks for having me. Now, Anchor and Flares, tell me a little bit about that title. Well, the title um, comes from the instructions for what you're supposed to take with you if you're heading out on a voyage. The sort of minimum safety requirements is um, you're supposed to have an anchor so you can stop, and you're supposed to have flares so you can attract attention. So this actually wasn't my original idea for a title. Um, so there was a lot of discussion about it. I was rooting for 
the title 10-8, the numbers 10-8, because in Maine law enforcement numerical code, 10-8 means available for service. And one of the themes of the book that I wrote my way to was what, how do I define an adult? What does it mean to be an adult in the world? And I decided an adult is 10-8. An adult is available for service. And specifically, a parent of adults. Oh, yeah. Well, parents are definitely 10-8. But at some point, uh, (laughs) and for those listeners with young children, I can tell you this does happen. But eventually, your children become adults. And because I have six, counting my stepchildren, uh, four of them are mine, two of them are my stepchildren. And they all line up like stair steps in terms of age. So one after another, starting with my oldest son, Zach, they kind of crossed that threshold and became adults. And each of them, I think of it as each of them has gone 10-8. Each of them has become available for service in the world. And the youngest has now done it too, which is pretty neat. My children, um, my two oldest children are 22 and almost 20. There you go. And, and I still, <laughs> they're right on the edge. They're right yeah. on that edge, right? And, exactly. And then I have a fourteen-year-old, yeah. so she's she's just gotten out of the kind of kid stage. Yeah. And it does seem as the the way that one parents really do, shifts over time, and yet you never stop actually no. parenting. No. In fact, I was not too long ago. I was crossing the street with my youngest child, Wooly, who's my little baby. And we were crossing, the, we were stepping out into the road in Rockland. So there was a line of parked cars, and there's the crosswalk. Naturally, we're crossing at the crosswalk where it's safe. And I stepped forward, and I put my hand back to hold my daughter back until I could make sure no cars were coming. She was 22 years old. She was a police officer in uniform. She was carrying a gun. So, yeah, there's some things that just... Their reflexes, they don't change. Yeah, I'm laughing because I have my, I feel exactly the same way about my own 22-year-old, yeah. you know, who has been out in the world and has traveled yeah. to South America and Europe. Exactly. And, you know, is, and, and you still, but you still feel protective. You still, yeah. it's just a, it's just a thing. You can't stop. It's okay. And it makes me yeah. think about my own parents and how they must feel about me. And of course, I feel like I'm such a big old lady now, you know? Right, exactly. We're the grown-ups. Exactly. Yeah. So your, um, some of the conflicts that I found interesting in your book specifically um, included Wooly becoming a police officer, Mm -hmm. for one, because your first husband and Wooly's father died in 1996 in the line of duty as a state trooper. Yep. And also uh, the conflict of your son... Um, joining the U.S. Marines. Yes, in 2004, which and, was not a good moment. Right. Yeah. And, and you're a, I believe you consider yourself to be a pacifist. Relatively. I certainly... And that's um, probably evolved, yes. of course. Yeah. It was certainly very challenging. I, I'd like to think, actually, that I was... I had a more principled objection, really, than just first, um, when Zach first approached me about it, it had never occurred to me 
And given that there were two wars going on, wars that I had opinions about, given that my father had been a Marine, uh, my husband obviously had been a state trooper, which is not military, but it's kind of paramilitary in a way. And given that I work in uniform with uniformed police officers who carry guns and all of that sort of thing, you would think that I would have evolved a better, sort of more coherent view of my own children's responsibilities and vulnerabilities to violence in the world, as well as just violence in our community, let's say. But I hadn't. I It really had never occurred to me that one of my children would want to do this. And in my defense, he was only 16, maybe 17, going on 17 when it came up. So, you know, we hadn't really gotten that far. We were only just beginning to think about college and that sort of thing. So, but college was definitely my plan. And so when he joined the Marines, uh, it was a real struggle, partly because he joined, and I always want to call it the, uh, I always want to call it early admission, but (laughs) it's a delayed entry, the delayed entry program which meant you join, you sign up while you're still young, too young to do it, and they prepare you for boot camp. Your recruiter kind of works with you, um, getting you ready for boot camp, which is actually a good thing, but it meant that I had to sign the paperwork, and that was a real struggle. I have never had such a hard time signing my name, ever, or taken so long to do it. And and that is the interesting thing that happens in that age range. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it is having some um, influence over where your child goes to college, perhaps because you're footing the bill, or whether right. you're signing your name to something that says it's okay for him to fight for his country. Right. I mean, that's always the challenge is they have their own responsibility and their own free will and their own determinations. Right. And but, their own trajectory yes. in life, which is one of the things that was strange. And one of the reasons I wrote the book really is that I felt as though I had not really anticipated that that transition from child to adult was going to be as difficult for them, as complex a task for them, and as difficult for me as a mother or me and my husband as parents. Or I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me, but I, maybe because childcare books tend to kind of go up to a certain point, and then they stop. And um, the assumption was always, well, you, you know, take care of the kid until they're 18, you send them off to college, and then you're done. And, or they go to work, and you're done, or, but whatever, you're done. <laughs> um, and they have to make that, they have to cross that threshold. You can't do it for them. And in a lot of ways, you can't even help all that much. And that's really what's tricky, is realizing that this is something they have to kind of pick up and carry and go on with. And in fact, that's the glory of it, is seeing them do it. But it's it's hard. It's definitely hard. And I definitely learned with kid number one, as it turned out, really what that looks like. And one of the big lessons was that our children aren't safe. And we've spent so much time and energy trying to keep them safe, and they're not safe. They weren't completely safe before they became adults and went off into the world, but once they're out in the world, they're subject to all of the 
all of the harms and hurts and heartbreaks that have happened to us as adults. So as my son had to point out to me often, you know, but you do this. You manage this. You handle this. You know, why do you think that I can't or shouldn't? I was really struck by the story you told about the way that the citizens of Denmark dealt with the Jewish population Mm. during World War II. Yeah. And that ultimately only 60, Mm 6-0 Jews ended up losing their lives. Danish Jews. Danish Jews. Yes. And you compared the people of Denmark to game wardens. Yeah. Because there was some element of... I guess, the personalities that were generated in this culture that caused them to believe that some, in some way, you know, everybody is worthy of being cared for. Everybody is worthy of having a life. Yeah, and being protected and being rescued if necessary. Yeah, I compared, I grew up with that story because my father's family emigrated from Denmark and we had relatives who actually participated in that, um, the resistance and the rescue. And so it was always sort of a point of pride to me when I was little that I was half Danish. And I think I almost thought that it meant genetically I was immune from cowardice or <laughs> or moral turpitude or something, that I had this genetic advantage, which of course isn't true. I mean, if you're talking genetics, the Denmark and Germany are virtually identical. They are identical. We have to say virtually because the Danes like to think that we're a distinct people, but the reality is it's all one gene pool. So really it had to do with um, the culture and the decisions that were made and the attitude that had been cultivated about the worth of human beings, regardless of the things that would were at the time dividing human beings all over the place, including in the United States and everywhere else. So this was, for me, a a kind of touchstone story in my life. And of course, I raised my children with it. And lo and behold, (laughs) it turned out they listened to me (laughs) um, because the the willingness to risk yourself in the name of uh, human solidarity and love was part of what made Zach join the Marines, too. That service, especially in extreme circumstances, but really service period always risks the self. There's no such, there's no way to serve without risking yourself. So it was one of the many moments in my motherhood where I realized, shoo, my kids listen to me. (laughs) Dang. (laughs) Yeah. One of the stories that I found particularly interesting was about um, a man who lost his son, which of course happens, unfortunately, all the time with um, with the work that you do. You see people who lose their children. Mm-hmm. But this person was not necessarily the easiest individual to love. He, in fact, had been violent towards people around him and... Um, and at the same time, he still lost his son. And what you're describing as far as service, I think it's 
it, it, it is that next level. It is not just willing to take care of the people that we like. It's willing, being willing to take care of really anybody. Yeah. Some of people we may not like at all. With good reason. Right. Yeah. Well, and that is one of the things that I find so compelling about working with Maine's game wardens is that the way they respond and the intensity and energy they put into trying to help people isn't conditioned by who the victim is, that it really is essentially unconditional. You don't have to deserve it. It is a kind of grace that the wardens give, and um, and really they're giving it on behalf of all of us. I mean, we're we're fielding them, we're funding this project that's really directed at anybody who needs help, which is a pretty extraordinary thing, and it's something that whenever we discuss, I mean, as a society, we discuss sort of privatizing law enforcement, um, locking ourselves into gated communities so that, and having hiring our own armed guards to protect us or whatever. Uh, I really think about how basic, um, how basic a publicly funded law enforcement agency really is, um, how basic that is to all of our freedom and all of our human dignity. I think that's that's true, and I I don't believe the answer has ever been lock yourself away because the more that you build walls around yourself, the more the threats will change, and especially in today's world, I mean the things that have brought our country to its knees really were completely, at least to most of us, mm. completely unforeseen. So right. you you can deal with one visible threat, but there's another one that comes yeah. that you can't really prevent. So there is always going to be a need for someone on the front lines there is. who's willing to engage. Yeah. yeah. And that, that willingness to put yourself in harm's way on behalf of other people is really pretty impressive. And we, ta- we get to take it for granted. We really do. I mean, I get to walk around thinking of myself as a nonviolent person because there are people willing to use violence on my behalf. I get to call 911 and someone will show up and try to fix it and try to help. And I'm, you know, there are moments in the book that I describe sort of realizing that again and again. One is going to the firearms training with new game wardens. And these game wardens, by and large, are drawn from a population that's already familiar with firearms. They hunt. They um, Several of them had been in the military. So they have a comfort level with guns that I, even after 15 years in this job, I just don't have. I try. I mean, I really try to feel affectionate towards guns, and I just can't. So they always just seem loud and dangerous, especially if I'm holding them. But I did try. I you know, fire off a few rounds and make a mess of a paper target and try to feel macho. (laughs) Um, But the end result, what I realized was, when I was with them, was that they're practicing because people will shoot, try to shoot them. They're practicing so that they can go into situations on our behalf where people will be targeting them. 
And this year especially, that was extremely clear. So I realized my impulse when I'm with them is when the firearms instructor yells threat, which is what they do to have them respond, um, my immediate impulse was to jump in front of them, just like trying to hold Wooly back from walking into the road. These are all like they're about my children's age, and I react to them like a mother. And I wanted, I, my like physical sensation was I wanted to leap in front of these young armed men so that nobody could hurt them. And having to sort of step back and realize, no, actually, they have to go out in front of me. And that's um, true of my son, too, and true of all my children, really, and in the sense that I'm getting old. And it's now true of my little baby daughter, that she stands between me and the threat now. Yeah, that's 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 a tough one because no longer can you it's not even just that you can't protect them because things are dangerous but they are putting themselves in places where they're almost i, I don't know that they're seeking danger but they're they're engaging in a much right bigger way right they've made it their task and i don't even just mean bullets i mean there's that fortunately those are still relatively rare um but i mean even um there's the sort of psychological danger of being exposed to suffering and um, to being exposed to evil. My daughter at the moment is working for the computer crimes unit, which means she investigates child pornography, which means she has to look at child pornography. She has to be exposed to evil on that level. And I don't know how she does it. Um, I made her a little icon for her birthday of Ceres, the Greek goddess who goes into the underworld to rescue Persephone. So I told her that's what she's doing. She's going into the underworld to rescue. And that's very impressive to me. So there's, I don't know what you call that, spiritual danger, psychological danger. And then there's moral danger. They're risking doing something wrong. And when a police officer screws up, People can die, like a doctor or my um, my stepdaughter who's an intensive care unit nurse. If she makes a mistake, someone could die. And that's not true of me. That's not true of most of us. And it's a moral danger that they expose themselves to in order to serve. This idea of, of having a front line is an interesting one because it's it, it is easy to decide that you don't want to be in the military military yourself but then somebody is going to be in the military and I remember a patient coming in to tell me that just the psychological being in the draft during the Mm -hmm. Vietnam War just the psychological impact Mm -hmm. of possibly having your number up every single day was so um, formative yeah. for his young adult yeah. years that it it makes me really grateful for the people who um, sign up, yeah, so that who we volunteer. don't who volunteer, so that we don't have to have an entire nation of in this country young men 
who end up needing to um, possibly go into war. Well, and in virtually all countries, it's young men. There are very few countries that women serve in combat in any real sense, and there's a reason for that. And I think um, one of the many ways that we don't see and take for granted the service of others is that I think we are encouraged now not to notice the service of men. Um, We're encouraged not even to notice the service of our husbands, brothers, sons. Um, If there's a weird noise downstairs in the middle of the night, it's my husband's job to check it out. It just is. And once I was walking down the street with my husband before we were married here in Portland and a guy was coming towards us and he, I don't know what his problem was, but he was in a towering rage. So he was flailing around and screeching and kicking garbage cans and whatever. And he was walking down the sidewalk toward us and we were just going to walk by him. And the whole thing took maybe three seconds. But as we passed by him, my husband, without even consciously doing this, turned his body so that he was between me and this man and then man went by and he went around the corner and that was the end of it and my husband didn't even realize that he'd done it and I realized afterwards I told him I recognize that he's done it because one thing about losing a husband is you tend to notice husband stuff um, when you see it I noticed it and I said thank you to him but I also realized had he turned his body so that I was between him and the threat the relationship would not have lasted very long. (laughs) So the reality is the expectation is still there. And those of us who count ourselves feminists um, should not let that blind us to that. We do expect young men to, to put their bodies in harm's way, young men, old men, all men, for us. And that isn't because it doesn't hurt when they get hit. And it doesn't mean that it, you know, they're any less likely to die than we are. It's that they're stronger and historically they've been considered expendable. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about my, my son, my 22 year old, and I, I, I know, and yeah. I, <laughs> and I'm thinking about, you know, his. Well, I was in my family, the oldest of ten, and the first four of us were girls. Yeah. So my relationship with my five brothers is very different than my relationship eventually did become with my son. And I think it has come to, not only is it that men are asked to protect in many cases, but also provide. They're also, Mm -hmm. and these are roles that, despite the fact that women are in the workplace and women are in the military Mm -hmm. and women are also protecting and providing, this is still something that is kind of deeply enculturated. Yeah. and I think that when women were, when we were, I don't know, I guess, released out into the world more avidly, this never went away. No. No, and what did go away, maybe, um, and I don't know, I'm always, I'm always suspicious of attempts to kind of harken back to some better day, because when you go back, you, it never really looks that great close up. So I would say going forward, one of the things that, women could do is be more appreciative of what we in fact still ask men to do for us. We could be a little more appreciative of it. Um, if nothing else, we could stop you know, making 
the sort of eye-rolling remarks about men that are considered okay in polite company and ought not to be. Yeah, that's true. I don't. I think it's far less likely that one could get away with making an eye-rolling remark about women. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, so, you think? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, doesn't it come back to, again, this thing that you described about um, the nation of Denmark, just that we all have intrinsic value as human beings, and perhaps some of us will choose one role, some of us will choose a different mm-hmm. role, some of us have roles that um, have been modified based on our genders, but there is a value that each of us has. Yeah, and the, and actually each of us has multiple capabilities. It's not that, I mean, if I'm the only person in the house, you know, with the children, let's say, when they were young, uh, and there's a weird noise downstairs, then it's my job. And in fact, when I'm in a room full of women, if something happens that seems threatening, I'm usually the one that, like, takes on the protective role. I don't know why. Um, probably because I hang around law enforcement, so it's I've, I'm channeling them somehow. So it isn't that we don't have it or that women can't protect, be protective, or in fact aren't expected to be and have to be protective, including self-protective. I mean, it's not that. It's, um, it's more just... Well, all of it really is about seeing. It's about the willingness to see. And our ideas and theories about things can get in the way of our of seeing. We can shift the lens that lets us see one thing really clearly, but it tends to blur out other things. So it's important, I think, to shift the lens periodically and make sure you're not missing anything that really matters. Or anyone that really matters. Kate, how can people find out about the work that you're doing, including Anchor and Flares, a memoir of motherhood, hope, and service. They can go to my website, which is just katebraystrip.com. would probably be the easiest way. Well, I appreciate the time that you've taken to um, consider what you've seen in your life, not only as a mother, but as a community minister, chaplain to the main game warden service, um, author, it's. I think that this this life, considering one's life and taking the time to write it down and sharing this with other people, I think it's important. And oh, I personally, um, I, I very much enjoy your works. And every time one comes out, I think, okay, this, oh, is, this will be my morning read for the next yeah. few weeks. Oh, thank you. Good. I'm glad. Uh, we've been speaking with Kate Braystrip, who does, does many things, but is most recently the author of Anchor and Flares. And uh, I encourage those of you who are listening to go out and give it a read. Go to Kate's website um, to learn more about the other work that she's doing. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, whose 15 years of experience and unique perspective on the industry puts creativity and enjoyment into house hunting. Specializing in properties in southern Maine, Mary will work with you to get to know your wants, desires, and dreams, and make sure that the home you move into is as close to perfect as it gets. And she'll make sure you have fun along the way. Because while moving is one of the more stressful events you'll encounter, finding the right home doesn't have to be. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in Southern Maine, be in touch with Mary and find out more about why when it comes to buying and selling real estate, a good time really can be had by all. Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, your connection to living right. Go to marylibby.com for more information. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. 
That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. At the age of 18, Vivian Frank left her home to become a nun in a French-Canadian order. After 30 years of living as a nun, she realized it was time for her journey to being in the larger world and left the convent. She hasn't regretted her decision once. Her book, Forever Becoming, is about her lifelong search for spiritual meaning, truth, and freedom. And I love the fact that you have butterflies on the cover of your book. Thank you so much for coming in. You're very welcome, and I thank you for having me. You're, you were raised during an interesting time, and you're from northern Maine. Mm-hmm. Way up there. Way up there, from a relatively small town. Yes, very small. I think uh, not quite 5,000 people. So from reading your book, um, it struck me that during the time that you uh, became a nun, this was sort of expected in French-Canadian Catholic well, families. Well, this was hope. You know, that people hoped that they would have either a priest or a nun in the family, especially large families such as mine. And uh, my, fa- my mother was really sold on that <laughs> and uh, made me promise to become a nun when I was eight years old. But although I, I never said you know, a verbal promise. I just smiled because you didn't say no to my mother. <laughs> and she took that for a yes. And then she never let me forget. She would always introduce me as the one who was going to become a nun. So that stayed with me. That seems like a lot of pressure on an <coughs> eight-year-old. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I didn't put too much attention to it. Um, you know, it, it, she would introduce me that way and then I'd go and do my stuff and play and all of that. And um, um, but in my teen years, um, I started reading the lives of saints, and I was very moved by the life of Saint Teresa of the Child Jesus, and I wanted to be like her. She was so loving and had so much confidence in God, and so she was a great influence in my life. I read her life, the Histoire du Nam, every every year for many many years. Yeah. And <clears throat> she was very, very helpful. You were describing um, in your book a scene where you were walking down the street with one of your sisters. Yes. And it, it was a difficult conversation because she had a lot of frustration and anger about her life. Yeah. And you wanted to be loving and supportive toward her because, yeah. in part, because of this whole idea that you should be loving and supportive toward everyone. Yes, yes. And and um, so I learned you know, that art of loving very early on. And I think it was part of my nature, too. Uh, you know, when I had uh, uh, a sister who was pretty mean to me during the fifth and sixth grades, and um, in the second year that I was there, I, I just did an act of kindness out of, you know, and she turned around completely. And every time I'd see her, she had tears in her eyes. So, So all I did was you know, say a few words of kindness to her. She needed help, I could see, and um, uh, and I was, we were in church, and her, I had seen her sit down, and her face was just as white as a sheet. 
Nobody else noticed. So I went to one of the nuns and I said, she is ill. So Mother Mary Louise Chanel est malade. <laughs> so that, that changed her. Isn't that amazing? Just a little act like that. So that encouraged me too, you know, to be as loving as I could. Well, that is an interesting turnaround. If you're seeing someone that is um, one of the sisters that's educating you, yeah, and you're realizing that nobody else is seeing what you're seeing, and you're a young child, yeah. but this somehow this created a bridge between you and this, yes. this sister, oh, which yes. previously hadn't existed. Yeah, yeah. And when I became a nun later on, you know, and I'd meet her occasionally because we didn't live in the same house, uh, um, she would always tear up and. Uh, you know, and I knew it was just from that. So that lasted for the rest of her life. <laughs> Isn't that great? Well, it is great. And it's also an interesting, your book, you called it Forever Becoming, The Ever-Deepening Realization of Presence in My Life. Yeah. And what this says to me is that we, all of us, yes. are always in a state of becoming. Yes. We're only wherever we are for yes whatever millisecond that is, right. and then we move on. And mm-hmm. whoever we're interacting with, similarly, they yeah. are just exactly where they are at that moment. Yes. So all of us are constantly in a state of flux yes. mm-hmm. or forever becoming. Mm-hmm. But yours started when you were younger by, it was more external. It was more yes. what you were being told by the church yes. you yep. should believe in. Yes, and um, you know, it was mostly rote stuff. And a lot of stuff didn't make any sense to me, but there was nobody that I could talk to. That that was the big thing in growing up, you know. None of my teachers would have listened, n- none of the family. Um, you know, I, I would have really been had a hard put down. That would that would have been the end of it. So I kept everything to myself. And um, um, and then you know when I when I uh, after <coughs> being influenced by. Uh, St. Therese's book then, at some point I realized that the best way for me was to get out of that environment was to enter a convent. And that's that's the way God worked with me. I didn't realize it till much later on, but that's the way I had to go, because if I had opted to marry, none of what happened would have happened, and because uh, uh, I had every opportunity to grow spiritually, and there were some hard times, um, especially at the beginning until I had this experience with Christ, you know, which kind of pulled me right out of where I was. Well, describe to me what was going on in northern Maine as you were growing up, just the, the culture and the history. What was the time period and what was going on around you? Yeah, well, it was uh, the time of the Depression. I was born in 31, uh, but we didn't feel it too much in my family because my father had a grocery store, and so we never lacked of food. And But I saw the kind-heartedness of my father because he never refused anybody who couldn't pay. And, um, and then my older brother joined the Marines, and there were no more young men, you know, in town. And uh, so my father gathered the children together, and he said, which one of you would like to work with me at the store? (laughs) I raised my hand right away because I had a good relationship with him. And um, so it was pleasant, but it was very, very hard. And in those days, you know, there was no, nobody knew about, you shouldn't really, uh, how to bend to lift up things and all this. So I developed some 
physical problems, which I found out later on probably stemmed from there. Um, so, um, uh, but all in all, I had a pretty normal um, adolescence because there were boys, we had the boys' school, high school, and the girls, and, and the priests were um, teaching at the boys' school, but they had a dance once a month. for, So that was, that was good. And then we were a group of boys and girls that played together, so I never you know, had a boyfriend, but I had fun. It was fun, and it was relaxed. It was a nice place to live, you know? Um, and so a nice place to grow up. Uh, you know, there, it was easy in some ways. You know, I had restrictions from both the church and the school and the home <laughs> and and the neighbors, you know, who kept a strict, strict eye on on the children, and if they saw you talking to a boy, your mother would know about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's the way it was. And at the time that you were growing up, is it true that generally the way that if you were, if you were a girl, you yeah. could get married, or you yes. could go on and become a teacher or a nurse? Yes, that was or, about it. Or a nun. That's it. That was about it. Yes. And, and so you decided to become a nun in part because you had this early realization that you were connected spiritually to some higher, yes, to, yes. to God. Yes, and uh, so at 14, I made up my mind. You know, I, I, I had to make a decision. Was I going to go through with this with what my mother wanted? And I said, yes. You know, and I intended to join the same community that Therese was in, but thankfully they said no. Because <laughs> it would have been, it, it would not have been. <clears throat> my type really yeah well I was really interested to read about this because you part of your journey was seeking the right community yes. the right spiritual community yes to be a it took part me a of. while didn't it yes and you went actually between the United States and also Canada yes and you were working with different orders along the way yes can you talk to me a little bit about that yeah that I was very very grateful to my original community who allowed me to, to search. I think they realized at some point that I was searching and that I I was um, I needed to uh, find something else and they they had no answer for me but they let me go to these different types of community uh, like like the one um, in Gloucester, Massachusetts which was a five week period of uh, nuns from different communities living together, seeing how they could live a deeper contemplative life together. And all of these experiences were so beautiful. And the one in Canada and Ontario was, you know, opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I realized there that even though the, the head of the community there, they were not nuns, but boy, she was strict. And I said, no, I don't need that. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, so then uh, came the time when, um, in my search, I realized that I had to leave the convent, and uh, and they were open to that. I think I think they were kind of, you know, relieved in a way because I was searching and and you know and I hadn't found what I needed, and so I went to a stricter community, uh, contemplative. Monastery, and that's that's where I woke up one night, and I knew 
I just knew it was time for me to move on and to move out. During those whole 30 years, every once in a while I would get the strong feeling that I didn't belong there, but I had to wait for the right time. I just didn't know it would take 30 years. And why do you think that it was that night that you woke up and, and that was the time? Yes, it was very clear. It was you know, somebody, some psychic said, you know, somebody came to you. I, I was not aware. It was just so profoundly deep that this was the time to do it. And, you know, when I went to the prioress the next morning in order that I wouldn't back down, I went to her to let her know it was like, you know, this was meant to be. It was fine with her and with the other sisters. And it was just, I was being led. And, um, and I followed through and everything fell into place. You also experienced some interesting church history as you were spending 30 years as a nun, because during the time that you were doing this, Vatican II came along Yes, and really changed the landscape of the church. Yes, we were very hopeful. Uh, it happened, um, I think, uh, probably in my late 30s, early 40s, and we, we were just, you know, and the, and the community had decided on a few changes. Um, like, you know, uh, we were given $25 a month so we could buy our toiletries and stuff like that. And uh, the, the, the habit was uh, modified so that, you know, it went only down to the calves and um, the, the headdress was much lighter. And, um, but there was not much more that, w- that was done after that. They, they were reluctant to give too much freedom to the nuns. And uh, most of the nuns accepted that. I did not. <laughs> well, you've also commented that one of the things that was challenging for you as a nun was that the, the priests, that the men, were yeah. typically the ones that actually created the rules and the structure yes, yes. for the women, for the nuns. Yes. And yeah. that didn't really work that well for you. No. Well, that, that was, you know, that had always been the case through the centuries. The, the priests, the men, were always the, the ones who, who regulated the nuns' lives. The nuns had nothing to say with it about, you know, the book of rules and so on. It was all, and so it was just, um, you know, it just added to my, you know, to my resolve that this was not right. It was not the way I wanted to live the rest of my life. Yeah. And even as a nun, there weren't that many different choices for you. There no. was, you could be a teacher, which was what you did become. You became yeah. a teacher. Yeah. Or you could be a nurse, or yes. you could be a contemplative. Yes. And beyond that. Yeah, I did I did work with the children, at the emotionally disturbed children, which I loved. You know, that was uh, such a, to be with children was, was so wonderful for me. And um so, uh, and then I did get involved with the charismatic movement where, where with a nun from another community where we started a, an after school for the kids and thrift store and all that. And that didn't pan out, it, it fell through. But, um, and then I, um, and, and then when that fell through, um, I, they didn't have a job for me in the community, so I had to look for a job, which was, First time I'd ever done that, and found something up north. My, 
in my home territory, and I had a wonderful two years there. And it's from there that I met one of the sisters from the Daughters of Wisdom, which I went to. They were in New York and talked with her. And my community was very open. They were just accepted it. So that was good. Well, I, I, I was struck by that, that you spent all of these decades as a nun. And when it came time for you to leave, you they gave you your their blessing. Because I think they, they sensed that I was not uh, content. There was some dissatisfaction in that life for me, uh, and uh, I needed more freedom. I needed um, to look elsewhere, and that's why they allowed me to. And when it came time, it was after Vatican II, so the rules had relaxed. So all I had to do when they asked me to write, you know, I had to get in contact with Rome and all of this, to why I was leaving the convent. And I, and I started by saying when I was eight years old, my mother had me promise to become a nun. <laughs> That's all I needed to say. <laughs> that was enough. <laughs> I didn't go into too many details, you know. And they were good to me, you know. And, you know, they were supportive. I was very very pleased, like, you know, when, when um, the work that I was led to after I left, which I had no idea this was going to, how things were going to happen, because I had no money, I had no idea where I was going, what I was going to do, and I knew my family was not going to support me. So I told the Lord, you know, you better take care of me. That's it. And he has. And, and you end up in Portland initially, I, and now I, you live in South Portland. I, yeah, right. So I went to Deer Isle to take the massage course, met people from Portland. They loved my work, and they helped me here. So I always had lots of help from the late people, and, you know, and they just kind of were motherly and lovely and caring for me because I was so green. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, that must have been interesting that you were a fully grown adult when you came out into the world, but you really didn't know anything no, of the real like, world at all. It was like starting life again at 18, and I was 50, and in a, a big city. I mean, Van Buren was a very small town. So, you know, the first year, uh, I remember thinking, you know, I can't wait for this year to be over, so it's not going to be completely new. I'll have some, you know, but people were very supportive. And, you know, even though it was difficult, I mean, even to open a checking account, I didn't have any ID. <laughs> and so uh, one of the uh, people at the center, the holistic center where I was working from, um, came to the bank with me and, and spoke up for me, so I was able to open a, a checking account. This was all, wow, this is bizarre. <laughs> I can't even open a checking account. It was so very different. And you were able to take uh, some coursework because even though you left with nothing, or not much, money, yeah. they eventually did give you something. They gave me, the nuns gave me $1,000, and uh, they said, don't touch it, and that's what I did. I just, you know, I put it in savings and then mutual, uh, I don't remember if it was mutual funds first or I forget. And then um, six years after I left, well, four years after I left, I changed to somebody, uh, spoke to me about A.L. Williams, who was a mutual fund company. 
and um, he advised me to change and go with them and I was it was like 15 or 18 percent interest in those days wasn't that great and by the time it came to buy my house uh, I had grown to 10,000 so so you know and I saw the guy after I took it out and he said that was like 1987 and he said if you had not taken it out you would have lost everything so God was really taking care of me Lisa it was really every step of the way and where did you get the money for the massage course that you took oh the I, I um, before uh, taking the course um, I wrote to the provincial in in my original community and just mentioned how much it would how much it cost and I didn't ask for it and then I had a dream that night that I was getting that same that amount in a check and it arrived the next day <laughs> so they were very very good to me yeah and uh, so it's interesting because uh, some of the nuns uh, around have read my book and were very, you know, they, they, they just didn't know. Nobody knew what I, what I experienced because there was just no way I could talk about it. And I only talked about my spiritual experiences when I left, when I met some people at the Holistic Center who, was very, who were very open. So it was easier for me to talk to them. So it was interesting because people accepted it, you know, what... You know, it was like no big deal. You had this, this beautiful, wonderful, mystical experience, and that's fine. <laughs> well, I like the fact that it, you didn't have to be within the religious order to have a spiritual experience. And right. in fact, your whole life was filled in very practical ways yes. with spiritual experiences. Yes, they were. Yes, it was. So you spent time within a church in a very structured way and yeah. then outside of a church in a very different and not as structured way. Right. But either way, you still have felt this presence in your life. Well, yes, more and more so, too, um, which is, you know, I'm always learning. I'm always becoming. You know, if you go to my website, uh, I, I feel like, oh, I, I, should, I shouldn't have finished writing the book because I'm, I'm getting all these insights and these new revelations it's like oh well I can put them on you know on my blog and some people read them and um, well maybe you have a second book in you <laughs> well I, I don't th I don't know if I'll go for that it's I it was a wonderful experience um, but right now it's it's um, you know I don't think I'll ever come out of how much money it took, you know, and how, you know, I don't think it'll ever come back. So I'm not ready to, you know, I, I, I think I can get, sell the books. I'm going to be doing some readings and um, eventually, you know, but there the company's always after me to buy a hundred books. No, no more. I've done it. You know, I, I got about 275 and I still have about 75 left. So that, that's pretty good. Well, I'm guessing that there are people who are listening who will want to read your book and to learn more about your experiences. You said you have a website. Can you tell us yes. what that is? www.vivianfranc.com. Well, people should read this book because I enjoyed reading it, and I really, um, 
I enjoyed how honest you were about the struggle that, yes. this, that this was to yes. go through because it, it was something. You've made a series of somewhat difficult decisions over the course of your life to yes. get to this happy place that you are now yes. where you continued to become and yes. to know that there is this, this presence in your life. Yes. But, it, you know, this didn't come easily. No, no, it didn't. No, because I, I have four planets in Virgo. <laughs> so that, that's pretty hard. <laughs> it's not easy. And uh, then I have a Cancer moon, so that's, you know, the deep feelings and everything, and, and a Leo rising. So uh, this quite a combination. It's, it's been fun. <laughs> I love that you are a former nun and also a fan of the stars. To be exposed to Eastern mysticism, I didn't know what was happening with me when some of these experiences I, I had, even as a nun. And I said, what does this mean? You know, this is not part of my Catholic faith at all. What do I do with it? That was the big thing always. You know, and then it became very clear. It's like, yeah, there's a melding of both. Both are right and both are from God. And so somehow, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I feel that that the mystical part I'm understanding better because it's become more common for people to um, to um, uh, look at the what the Buddhists are doing and uh, they were anyway I don't know how they are now because they they get stuck also just like any other religion yeah but um, the idea of of uh, that this is all illusion <laughs> and uh, so therefore your thoughts your your feelings your experiences your perceptions they all pass away so isn't it great to know that you you can look at that from here where from consciousness and say oh yeah that's not me I don't need that <laughs> so it's a great way to live I'm very thankful uh, we've been speaking with Vivian Frank who is the author of forever becoming I really give you so much credit, and I thank you for the work that you have done to bring your book and this kind of knowledge into the world. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Lisa. I'm very grateful. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Mac Page, an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. Mac Page, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 224, Wellness from Within. Our guests have included Kate Braystrup and Vivian Frank. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Wellness From Within show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Mac Page, Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, and Apothecary by Design. 
Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belli. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com.